I'd invite you to turn, if you would now, in your Bibles to the passage we were considering last week. Uh, Once again, Mark chapter 7. We'll be reading just as verses 14 through 23 this morning. Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 23. Just a reminder of the context. Um, This is, once again, one of the controversy issues uh, we find in the Gospel of Mark. There's a number of these things where we see Jesus in diametric opposition to the scribes and the Pharisees. And uh, in some manner or other, it is almost always over the issue of legalism. Uh, The Pharisees, uh, the scribes and Pharisees, taught a legalistic interpretation of the law of Moses. They had added to that. uh, They had inherited, as it were, uh, something called the oral tradition, the tradition of the elders, which put layer of layer upon other codes, other conduct required in order to keep the law properly. And so Jesus has just been confronting this, been dealing with the issue of what is true defilement. And so he comes to verse 14, and Jesus called the people to him and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Let's pray. Father, grant us a great measure of your Holy Spirit in understanding what Jesus has taught, that these words might enable us to understand more fully why we need everything that Jesus has done for us. Help these words also penetrate into our understanding in such a way that we can see clearly the errors of the scribes and Pharisees, that we can clearly see the truth that Jesus is presenting and then have a wisdom from above in how to apply these things in our lives as Christians. We would ask, Father, as we would ask repeatedly, that you would so work in us that we can follow Jesus faithfully, that we can properly be salt and light to this generation in our witness to this world. In Jesus' name, amen. So we return again to this passage because there's still much to be gained from this passage where Jesus has contradicted and has refuted the legalism of the scribes and the Pharisees. So in this passage, Jesus has exposed, first of all, as we saw last week, the very shallow view of evil that the Pharisees were actually teaching. Uh, And this is always one of the key problems that we're going to find with every form of legalistic religion. Legalism, legalistic religion, never takes evil seriously enough. It always treats evil as something that is external, 
something external to our real character as human beings. Which is why many of us have trouble with the idea that God hates the sin and loves the sinner. Because do you recognize that if we're not careful with that kind of a statement, we're basically saying that a sinner is never evil, just the actions which he does. And that is a serious distortion, even a serious destruction, with respect to what the gospel actually teaches. Now, in certain contexts, I have no problem saying God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. Because there is a proper way in which God loves sinners, <laughs> those who are sinful. And as long as we're willing to call them sinful and that God loves them in spite of their sin, as long as we explain it carefully, it's fine. But as a slogan, you'll never hear me say from the pulpit, well, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. It is a compression of thought that is far more confusing than it is helpful to the true state of affairs. To say that God loves the sinner but hates the sin is once again a form of legalism, as though evil only exists in what a person does and not in who a person happens to be. And so that's one of the things we learn from this. It's one of the implications of what we were looking at last week as we saw the several basic truths that Jesus was presenting. Now let me just rehearse those to you for you very, very quickly. In exposing what's wrong with legalism, in teaching and preaching contrary to legalism, Jesus basically said this, Legalism wrongly defines evil, wrongly confines evil to the failing to follow an external kind of code. Further, Jesus made it clear that the evil which truly defiles a person is not going to be found in the external breaking of a code. And finally, Jesus taught that, that human evil is most essentially a matter of the human heart, that we have to look to the source. We have to look to the real problem, which we find in the human heart. Now, we didn't have enough time to consider that last point sufficiently last week, and so that's where I want us to go this morning. I want us to focus upon this matter of the human heart. Our purpose here is to see the human heart as Jesus knew and understood the human heart, as Jesus teaches about the human heart, to enable us to see it. We need to see it and then to gain some understanding biblically as to how are we to address uh, even the evil that exists in our hearts as Christians. So the idea is to gain a better, deeper, biblical, Christ-given revelation and understanding of the evil of the human heart, and then to recognize that even as we are plagued by our own hearts as Christians, how then can we address that? So three things I intend to try to convey this morning out of this. The human heart is truly the heart of the matter in tracing out human evil. We, we mentioned that last week. We're going to emphasize that again. The human heart, secondly, is our own worst enemy in terms of the Christian life. Thirdly, Scripture teaches us how to handle our own hearts and to do so through the truths, the promises, the grace of the gospel that God has given to us. Now, first of all, Jesus gives us truth about the human heart, that the heart is the source of all human evil. It's grounded in verse 20, what Jesus says in verse 20, where he says, it is out of a person, what comes out of a person, which actually defiles a person morally. In other words, again, emphasizing what we saw last week, human evil is not found primarily 
in the outer and external actions which we perform. Rather, human evil has its source in the human heart, in the inner soul of who we happen to be. Human evil is most essentially a matter of what is wrong with a person's character inside of his heart. So evil begins on the inside. Evil begins on the inside of the person who actually then does evil things. Now, also as a matter of review, uh, Jesus then is declaring by this that morality is a matter of human character first and foremost. All right, so listen to this. Morality, right and wrong, morality, what we think about morality, it's first and foremost human character before we actually look at human actions. So real righteousness, if this is true, real righteousness has to begin in the heart and it has to come from the heart. Now in contrast to this, the scribes and the Pharisees considered righteousness to be a matter of conduct, simply keeping a code. It was how a person acted in keeping all of the rules or the traditions of the elders. Uh, the code keeping is what counted for good or evil. Uh, leaving out a person's motivations, not addressing a person's desires, uh, not considering the person's intentions of the heart. It's, as it were, code, code without character. That was their understanding of evil. Now, let's apply that, the critique and understanding that Jesus presents, to that famous statement that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus says this, I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what Jesus is teaching there, some people have wrongly said, yeah, Jesus is basically teaching that the scribes had this kind of righteousness. You have to have the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's true, but that's not the point of this passage. That's not the contrast that Jesus is making at all. If you read further, you'll see that the contrast that Jesus is making is between that external code-keeping righteousness and the righteousness that has to be inside a person in terms of his character. Now, let me show this. Jesus is teaching that this external code-keeping righteousness, rule-keeping, that's not true or sufficient righteousness at all. The greater righteousness that a person needs in order to, the, to enter the kingdom of heaven would have to come from within the human heart. But no one has that heart righteousness naturally. The Gospels and the Epistles make it very clear. The kind of righteousness that a person would have in order to exceed the code righteousness of the Pharisees is the kind of righteousness that no one has ever had since the fall in a natural way. The natural state of human beings since the fall of Adam has been spiritual death, being dead in our trespasses and sins, living in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, being darkened in our understanding towards God, alienated from the life of God, corrupted through deceitful desires and having a hardness of heart towards God, toward the things of God, and none of that can ever change naturally. It is only by the working of the grace of the gospel, working in a person's heart, that that change can ever take place. Only God's grace 
can change and renew the heart by the working of the Holy Spirit. So, Jesus has made it clear. The true evil comes out of the human heart. True righteousness also must be something that's in the human heart. But no one has that true righteousness ever naturally at all. So then back then to verses 21 through 23, where Jesus gives this analysis, this this diagnostic profile of what the fallen human heart looks like. Jesus is here the spiritual cardiologist. He's going to say exactly what the human heart is like. Now what he gives us is a comprehensive list of vices, This list is entirely absent of virtues. It's a comprehensive list of vices. It reminds us of what God said back in the Old Testament concerning why he brought judgment upon the the people of God, the entire human race, at the flood. Because the thoughts and intentions of their hearts were only evil all the time. Jesus picks up that same thought, that same analysis in this passage. Now, there are 13 things in this list that Jesus gives us here, but the way to look at this list is to recognize that the very first one is the fountain, the root, the source of all the others. Uh, So then you have 12 that follow that first one, and it's interesting in the Greek, the first six are in the plural, and the second six are all in the singular, And the commentators all basically say that by putting the first six in the plural, it's teaching about activities that find their root in the heart. And then the others that are singular would be with reference to attitudes. Well, that makes sense. The human heart is the source of our rotten activities and actions. The human heart is the source of our rotten thoughts and intentions and vices in that sense. Okay. Now, just a word here so you'll understand what I'm saying. Uh, We all know what the plural of vice is. The plural of vice is vices. But what's the adjective or the adverb with respect to the word vice? Depending upon the the situation, the adjective is vicious. And the adverb is viciously. Now, we normally think of vicious and viciously and apply it to some really bad dog. But in terms of ethics, it means actions related to those things that are vices. If something is a vice in terms of its activity, it is vicious action. And that's how we need to understand this because that's the most original usage of this word. We've we've lost it in English for the most part because we have more or less muted almost all of our descriptions of things that are wicked and evil. When was the last time you actually heard someone on uh, CBS, NBC, or even Fox call something wicked? Remember when Reagan, well, a lot of you can't remember this, but remember back when Reagan referred to the Soviet Union as the evil empire, he was taken to task because he used the word evil to describe a, a superpower. Now, let's look at this then. The, the evil that we produce, that begins in the human heart, begins with the first thing in this list, which is evil thoughts. Evil thoughts. uh, The evil in our heart begins with evil thoughts. Now, a more literal translation of that is evil 
reasonings, because the Greek word there is the same, well, bring it over into modern English, and we get the word dialogue. And you can think about what a dialogue is. It's a conversation back and forth. Well, that also reflects what reasonings happen to be, uh, reasoning back and forth. And the first thing that Jesus says is that evil begins in the human heart because of evil reasonings. It's like this. The Bible sort of puts a dim view on what is often our thinking today, that the evil inside, oh, it's just spontaneous. It just happened. I didn't mean to. Uh, the evil inside, it's just an accident. I'm reminded of uh, how once uh, Julie told me a story about uh, Lindsay. Lindsay had gotten in trouble at school because she had pinched a girl. And she said, well, I didn't do it on purpose. (laughs) Oh, it just happened spontaneously? (laughs) Evil begins with the rationality of our minds, which reminds us of something else. Very often people think that the most rational people are going to do what is good. It just makes sense to do what is good. No, it doesn't. Uh, Very often, the most rational thing in a situation is to look out for yourself, which may mean that you are ignoring the good that other people need or ignoring the good that other people should have done for them. Rationality is simply a tool that can be used for good or evil. Rationality is... And rationality is not a virtue. Neither is rationality a vice. Rationality is simply a tool. But when you put evil in front of it, that's really what's going on. In fact, you and I should say something like this. Of of all of those great uh, figures in history in the 20th century, whether it's Hitler or Stalin or Pol Pot, who are responsible for the the bloody massacre of millions of people, we should never agree when the world calls these people madmen. These people were not crazy. They were evil. And there's a huge difference. As soon as we psychologize evil, we have taken our eyes off of what is truly going on in the human heart, and we've denied what Jesus says here, that the fountain of all evil is found in evil reasonings, evil thoughts going on within the mind. So out of that then, Jesus gives the the vicious activities and the deadly vices. So I'm just going to read through these. And the value of reading through these is just to remind ourselves, what do these things mean? And then if we're careful as Christians, we will say, And how does my own heart get identified here? So, Jesus says, sexual immoralities. The older translations, if you had an old King James, it would say fornications. All sexual actions outside of the boundaries and bonds of marriage. That's what that means. Therefore, immoral. Thefts, acts of stealing that is taken properly unjustly. Murders, the unjust killing of human beings. Adulteries, sexual actions which violate the marriage covenant. Covetings, 
actions of greed and acts of avarice. Wicked acts, which going back and looking at this means essentially those actions that are done intentionally in opposition to what is good. And then Jesus goes on to give you the the attitudes that flow out of wicked and evil reasonings. Uh, He speaks of these vices, deceit, which is fraud or cunning or treachery. In fact, the Greek here especially uh, gives the flavor of doing something by way of trickery to get the better of someone else. Uh, Sensuality. These are words we don't use much anymore, right? Lewdness, lasciviousness, the unrestrained sexual desire. Envy. Fascinating. And literally in the Greek, it means the sinister eye. Envy here is the sinister eye, the evil eye. It means to look upon another with ill will, with a fierce and grudging displeasure or resentment because the other person has something that you wish you had. Envy. Jesus mentions slander. And the Greek word here, when it's used against God, is the word blasphemy. In this context, it refers to our sins against one another, but essentially means this. It's abusive speech or disrespectful speech that's going to defame a person's character unjustly, unrighteously. Pride, the inner attitude of feeling arrogant or conceit or feeling superior. And then foolishness. Do you realize that foolishness is vicious? Foolishness is a vice. What is foolishness? It's folly. But what is folly biblically defined? It's curable stupidity. Now, listen carefully. It's curable stupidity. Now, some of us are plagued with stupidity that can't be fixed. You know, all of us have those certain things about us. You know, Uh, a famous saying is that against stupidity, the gods themselves contend in vain. Friedrich Schiller. Sometimes I have thought, how in the world could I be so stupid? But I continue to be stupid in certain ways. It seems like it's incurable. Folly and foolishness, though, is curable stupidity, meaning it's the refusal to gain wisdom. It's the refusal to learn what is right and what is wrong when you have the opportunity to do so. Foolishness is the failure to learn to do right when the opportunity to learn to do right is right there in front of you. Foolishness is the ever-present failure to pursue wisdom that God says he would graciously give to those who ask. Now, so when you think about everything that is wrong with this world, Jesus has covered it. But notice it's, it's not the, the failed institutions of socialism. It's not the failed institutions of capitalism. It's not the failed institutions of marriage. It's not any of the failed institutions that Jesus says is the, is the plague of evil upon the human race. The plague of evil upon the human race is what is resident and then even president within the human heart. What resides there, what presides there, 
this is the problem. This is the human predicament. It's, and it's a valuable list to mull over. It's valuable to think about these things as even a guidance for our own confession and repentance of sin. We always need to keep in mind that the birthplace of any of our sins and every one of our sins is, in fact, our own human heart. Now, then let's look to the disciples' reaction to what Jesus said. Look at the text. Look at, look at the reaction of the disciples. There isn't one. It's not recorded. There's no recorded reaction at all. Now, it's interesting. We don't see the disciples asking any questions about this. They ask questions about what Jesus said about that which comes out of a person defiles them. But here we have this list. Not any questions. In fact, none of the disciples steps up and says something like this. Wow. That really describes my heart. It's likely they were a bit stunned when they heard Jesus recite these things. Why? Well, it's because the Pharisees did not believe in this broken condition of the human heart. Uh, it was not taught within the tradition of the elders that this was the real problem with human beings. It's quite possible that the disciples in all of the teaching in the Jewish synagogues that they had ever experienced had never heard the human condition described this way. To have the human heart described as being so vicious, so wicked, and so full of vice. In truth, that should not be surprising. Because this doctrine is the most difficult doctrine, it seems, for unbelievers to actually accept. Sometimes because of our Calvinism, we think that, well, how could non-believers ever uh, accept the fact that God is a predestinating and electing God and so forth? Uh, the, the really difficult idea for the non-believers in our age is, in fact, the doctrine of human evil. It's also very hard for Christians and many churches to truly accept. It, it, it doesn't seem to matter how often in history, history has shown us deep and troubling faces of human evil where human beings have, have acted as moral monsters against other human beings. It doesn't matter how many examples of that we have. We still hear people saying often in so many ways, Movies, television, uh, conversations you have with non-believers. Well, but human beings are at heart basically good. It doesn't take many shows of television to watch before something like that comes up. And then the, then the other side of that is because the human heart is basically good, the advice given to the hero, to the heroine, and her point of crisis again and again and again is this. Just listen to your heart. Do what your heart says to do. And you'll be fine. I will say this as a Christian. 
What Jesus describes here is the state of the human heart by virtue of original sin and by virtue of our first birth into this world. And if we are not convinced that the human heart is this bad, then whatever profession of faith we have as a Christian is probably a legalistic religion. Yeah, we move on to what Jesus says. The biblical response to this diagnosis should, in fact, give us a profound clarity about our spiritual lives. Or in other words, in light of what Jesus is teaching, we should see with crystal clarity this. The greatest enemy that you and I have lives inside of us. Our greatest enemy to loving God and loving others is our own human heart. If for a Christian, we would say, as Scripture would teach us to say, that the greatest dangers we face in life are the dangers associated with sin, the sins that we would commit. We must also recognize that the great engine of sin lives in us because the heart is the great engine of sin. That's what Jesus is teaching. So it's important to know this engine of sin. It's important to know this enemy. Now, in the book of Jeremiah, there is a whole lot that is said about the human heart many different places and many different ways. I want us to think about some significant things that are said in the book of Jeremiah with respect to this. Jeremiah 17.9, we brought this up last week. It's, it's a famous verse about the human heart where Jeremiah says, the heart, is the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Well, Notice that God is basically telling us, uh, here is the enemy, know this enemy. Your heart, your heart is deceitful above all else, desperately wicked. So God is saying, know this, understand this, make sure you get this. Know that our own hearts are enemies to what is good. Our own hearts are the enemy to the holiness of, and righteousness and goodness of the life that God has designed for us. So it's not surprising because that's true that there are a lot of Scripture that tell us what we should do with our hearts. In fact, I think that Proverbs 4.23 really sums up the, the gist of what most of them would say. That proverb says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. All of the issues of life come up out of the heart. Therefore, guard your heart. Now, we often think of guarding as protecting, and it's true. But where do we find guards today? In jails. And what are they guarding? Criminals. And what is the function of guarding? They don't want the criminals to escape. Guarding here goes both ways. You have to guard your heart because it is the source of the things that are evil. So you've got to guard and keep watch over your heart, but you've also got to guard your heart to protect it from the things that can, in fact, contaminate it and make it worse. We may be taken, and we often are, in the wrong direction by our hearts. Because our hearts, when left to themselves, are the enemy 
of everything that's righteous and good in the sight of God. But then this verse tells us something else. And it makes the matter even more complicated. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us about another level in which the heart is our enemy. Because it speaks about a level in which you don't know your heart. And not knowing an enemy makes an enemy dangerous. The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? The rhetorical question there is this. You don't. No one can. Now, in a moment we'll see that in verse 10, the verse right after this tells us God does. God knows. God understands. But for the moment, just just think about what this means. The fact that you have a heart. It's your enemy. And it's not something you can know as well as you perhaps would want to know it. We cannot understand our own hearts because of the desperately wicked and deceitful nature of our hearts. And this remains true even when we become Christians. The heart is still the seat of sinfulness in our lives. We can even compare the human heart to this thing that is referred to in in the technical world as a black box. Let me explain a black box. Uh, Except for a few souls in this audience here, uh, for most of us, uh, a computer is a black box. We can give it inputs and it generates outputs. But we really don't understand what's going on inside of it, right? I mean, I don't understand what a a microprocessor is. I don't really understand random operating memory. I don't really get what a hard drive does. I just don't get it. I don't know what truly... I know zeros and ones. But I have no idea how this really all works the way it works and makes a computer. Now, the truth is, is that your heart is like a black box, uh, which is to say uh, the way things input into your heart and the way things come out of your heart, there's a mystery there. Because how many of you have had someone say something to you and it wasn't intended to be hurtful and others around you didn't hear it as hurtful and you got super defensive? Why did I get so defensive? Or have you ever said something and your dearly beloved spouse who works for the Holy Spirit has said something like this? Well, that was really arrogant. I didn't mean to be arrogant. (laughs) Well, you really were. (laughs) We don't even know at times what's going on inside of our hearts. That is, we get get this, you know, here's the input coming to us from outside. We process it and then we get this output. And we don't even see that when we are inputting the world, what is going on inside of the heart is mixing it up and then giving its output. And another way the heart is like a black box of a computer, your heart is filled with malware and destructive viruses that God put there through Adam. Really, you can say Adam put them there with his sin and his fall. That is why we struggle to love God. That is why we struggle to love others. It's why we struggle to put Christ absolutely first. It's why we struggle to put others ahead of ourselves. 
This is why we so often do what the Jews did during the time of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 2.13, God said about his people, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And and our tendency, because of the vices dwelling inside of our hearts, is to stop abiding in Christ as we should, stop walking with him as we should, and to let our hearts drift towards the things of the world. As if the things of the world could truly quench our thirsty souls. Why do we do this? We don't know. It's the black box of the heart operating inside of us. At one level, we know. It's because even as a believer, our heart is still our greatest enemy and an enemy to the things of God. But then we go to verse 10 in Jeremiah 17, and there the response of God to the the wickedness of the human heart, who can understand it? God's response to that question is this, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. In other words, it is only God who can understand the human heart. Only God can actually respond to our hearts with a full understanding and a full knowledge of who we are and why we are and why we do what we do. It is God alone who knows fully our great enemy that lives inside of us. And this is our hope. This is our hope. As bad as our hearts were before we became Christians, God loved us even then. Christ died for us in our ungodliness. Christ died for us even when our hearts were full of these vices. And God continues in his steadfast love toward us as Christians in spite of all these vices which are fighting in our hearts against the work of God. God still loves us. God continues to love us. So that leads us to consider what then, practically speaking, should we do with this enemy? What do we need to do? Again in Jeremiah, verses 13 and 14, Jeremiah says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Verse 14, he says, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. When Jeremiah looked at his own deceitful heart, he sought healing. He sought salvation in God. He turned to God. He turned away from allowing his his wayward and deceitful heart to forsake the fountain of living water. And, And this is what Christ has given to us, that even in the darkness of our sinful and deceitful hearts, we can yet pray what David prayed, Psalm 139, verses 23, 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there is any grievous way in me 
and lead me in the way everlasting. There are many, many scriptures that teach us what this means in terms of God leading us in the way that is everlasting. Uh, enabling, God enabling us to understand my heart is this way. How do I deal with it? Where do I go with it? In the final analysis, all the counsel of Scripture seems to be summed up in terms of dealing with our hearts best in Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Well, why not? Because your own understanding is deeply compromised by the evil reasonings that go on in your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him. Acknowledge God, and He will direct your paths. So I want to conclude with a number of things in Scripture that, that point us to trusting in God with our whole heart, that move us away from leaning on our own understanding, that here are ways that God recognizes your ways and therefore acknowledge Him in all of your ways according to what Scripture has taught, and He will direct your paths. So, seven ideas to close. First, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has prepared in advance for you to walk in them. Ephesians 2.10 Secondly, since God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is for you, who or what can be against you? Romans 8.31 since the Son of God died for you, and since God the Holy Spirit prays for you, God the Father causes all things to work together for your good. Romans 8.28 The psalmist, David, king of Israel, said this, The Lord will fulfill His purposes for me, and that God was a steadfast love and forever. And so you, you know that the living God will fulfill His purposes for you. Further, with Paul, you can confess that God who began a good work in you will carry it out and will complete it all the way to the day of Christ Jesus. With David again, you can Confess that God is Himself your Master and Lord. He is your chosen portion and your cup. The lines have fallen to you in pleasant places. Indeed, you have a beautiful inheritance from Psalm 16. And then finally with Paul once again. The Lord Jesus has supplied an all-sufficient grace, a grace that is sufficient for you, a grace that is made perfect in your weakness. And our black box hearts fill us with weakness. So that when you are weak, then you are also strong in Him. So, conclude. What is Jesus teaching?
our human hearts the source of the evil that is in us, that we do. The human heart is our own worst enemy in terms of what God wants for us. But Scripture tells us you can handle the evil of your heart. No, you can't. What you have to do is you have to trust in the Lord with all your heart. You have to lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, every day, constantly acknowledge Him. And then you can find Him providentially directing your paths. Let's pray. Father, we want to give you thanks for Scripture. Help us not to be afraid of how deeply the Bible reveals the evil within our hearts because the greatness of what you've done for in Christ is far, far greater than the evil and shame within us. And help us to hold on to that. Help us to grip tightly the truth that we are your workmanship. Help us to grip tightly the fact that you cause all things to work together for our good and that you began this good work in us. You'll continue it until the day of Christ Jesus. You'll fulfill your purposes for us and your grace is sufficient for us in any and every circumstance that truly our lines have fallen to us in pleasant places. You are our portion and our reward that you are all in all. Help us to know this and to believe this. Help us to know that you are far greater than our hearts because of all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.